Well, welcome uh, to the first uh, weekend of summer. That's usually how Memorial Day weekend is described. And we're experiencing our own summer here with the uh, uh, death of death of a couple of our air conditioning system. But the deacons have been working diligently, and I think we now have a contract to be replaced in the next week or two. What happens, we still have some capacity, uh, and it's cool when you come in, but then when you put this many bodies in a room, it quickly warms up. And that's why usually when you walk into a room in the uh, summer, it needs to be cool because it's hard for the system to catch up. But we've got some new systems uh, on order, and they'll help us catch up. But I was talking with one or two of the deacons this morning um, about the situation. They said, well, just follow these two directions during the worship service, and all will be well. No one will get overheated. He said, number one, ask the congregation not to metabolize. <laughs> don't burn any calories. Don't breathe out any carbon dioxide uh, that's, that's heated. And he said, as for you, preacher, don't get excited. That, that puts a lot of hot air into the, uh, uh, into the congregation. Now, they didn't say exactly those words I'm, I'm interpreting. Um, but we'll try to do that. I'll try to keep it real calm and uh, not remember I grew up a Baptist, you know. When I became a, uh, a Presbyterian, I was in uh, Presbytery. And one of my brethren, you know what Presbytery is? That's where quarterly all of the... Uh, 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 or the, the, the elders of the church and all the pastors meet and pray and as a congregation have preaching and examine candidates and deal with business for the whole geographical area of the church that we're uh, uh, are a part of. I was there a couple of weeks myself, uh, weeks ago myself. And um, I, I had just come in and I was examined and one of the brethren just very kindly said, well, well Jerry, you're in the Presbyterian church now and you're a minister, not a pastor, and you live in a man's and not a parsonage. So you got to get your terminology straight. This is, uh, we come today uh, to that part of John 17, verse 4, where Jesus makes the statement, <clears throat> I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. Before we delve into that, let's also notice that what a great weekend to study this verse. Because this is Memorial Day weekend. Memorial Day is what? Tomorrow. And this is when we remember those who were fighting for our country and paid the ultimate price and died in their fight. Uh, it's good that we do this first because that's what Jesus is saying. I'm here to finish the work. I was reading about one gold star mother whose son had died in Afghanistan, and uh, she was saying, well, they were, she was interviewed, and she said, well, if your son were asked about our involvement as a nation in the nation of Afghanistan, what would he say? What political statement would he make? And she said he wouldn't make any political statement. He would say, we have a job to do. That's all he would say. We have a job to do. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, I brought you glory on earth by doing the job. 
finishing the work you gave me to do. That's what we're going to study this morning. But let me say another word. Um, this gold star mother also made this statement. She said, a person dies two times. The first time when they take their last breath. The second time is when we stop saying their name. Now, that's true of families, I suppose. But there are too many American uh, heroes to us to remember all their names. So we set aside one day a year where we remember their sacrifice and what they were fighting for. The fact that we can meet here this morning to worship, and I don't think there are any spies among us. The fact that we can have our own copy of the Bible, and the fact that what I say this morning in our worship service is not censored before or after. Those privileges did not come without cost. Because since the founding of this republic, uh, there have been those who would take away those rights, the right to freedom of thought and freedom of conscience. That's what's in the First Amendment, freedom of religion and freedom of press, thought and conscience. And that's why we have a Second Amendment to protect the First Amendment because there are people who want to take those things away. Uh, first it was British imperialism, then Nazism, then communism, and now uh, Muslim terrorism. There are always uh, people and even nations that want to take those rights and privileges away because it's hard for their nation, which does not have those rights and privileges, because they don't believe in the image of God and man, which is in the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, to exist when there's the West and there's a country like this where the value and dignity of humankind, because we're made in God's image, and then the inalienable rights that come with that is hard for a country that doesn't believe in and suppresses those rights to exist when there's a shining beacon like America and the West that says this is how human beings should live under God. And so there's always some person, some movement, some nation trying to take away those rights. And they do it violently in other ways, like hacking computers. But there always must be those who are willing to stand up and say, we won't let you do it, no matter what it costs. And this is uh, on a monument out in Oklahoma, I think. This is from um, Charles Dickens. It's a quote from A Tale of Two Cities. You've heard it before, but I'll use it today. I see the lives for which I lay down my life, peaceful, useful, prosperous, and happy. I see that I hold a sanctuary in their hearts and in the hearts of their descendants generations hence. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. And this is important for us to take a day of memory that these things cost. And it works in very well with the verse that we're going to talk about this morning in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's a job to be done, a task to be finished, and he is another hero that did it for his people. Let's pray together before we get into God's Word. Father, we thank you that we have a free country and for those who were willing to protect it for us. Let us not forget them. And Father, we thank you that we have a Savior 
that finish the work of saving his people. We ask that you open this word to us this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want you to know at the outset, this uh, verse, John 17, 4, you know, I've preached it before. When you come as an interim to a church, uh, there's so much work to be done because I do the duties of a pastor, a purposeful interim, as well as getting to know everybody, training leadership, uh, reviewing finances, reviewing organizational structure, working with a transition team, working with a pastoral search team. And uh, this verse I have four sermons on. So we'll take a, a quiz this morning, which one you want to hear. The reason I have four sermons is because it's an open-ended verse. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Well, the question is, well, what work is he talking about? Is it baptizing a lot of people? Is it feeding a lot of hungry? Is it healing a lot of sick? Is it raising from the dead? Well, what work is he talking about? Question number one. And question number two how did he finish the work? And it's not readily answered in that verse. He just says, I have finished the work you gave me to do. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his time on the earth, was a very busy person. He slept little. By the time he prayed and, and ministered, he didn't have a home to worry about. He had nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have children. His whole life was devoted to ministry. And he healed so many people. He taught and taught and taught. And it says at the end of John chapter, uh, chapter 20 that Jesus did many other things not written in this book. And I suppose that if all the things he did were written down in those three years, the world would not hold the books. That's how busy he was. So what work was he finishing? What work was he doing? Well, he was healing the sick. He was teaching, teaching, teaching. And we have bits and pieces of what he taught in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're just representative. In fact, he taught the same thing again and again and again. And that's why sometimes in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have a slightly different account of what he said. Because he gave the same talk several different times, several different venues, several different uh, people groups in that three-year period. So was that his work, teaching and preaching and, and, and counseling and healing? But there was something else he was doing in the same time. He was discipling. In fact, if you go to the beginning of Mark or all the Gospels, a lot of... Uh, uh, ink is devoted to the time he spent selecting his 12 disciples. And in fact, he went through seven stages. We have a whole course on that. And he would say things like, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then he had a whole group and then he got it down to 12. And they were with, they were with him at Cain of Galilee when he turned the water of the wine. They were with him in John 4 when he met the woman on the, at the well. They were with him when he met with Nicodemus. They were always with him. He was always teaching them. And then he would take them away on retreats out in the wilderness because he said he left them and went up into the mountain to pray. He taught them. 
They said, hey, look at all these people. They need food. Well, we'll go get them something to eat. That's your job, your disciples. Well, we don't have any food. We got this kid here who's got some food. And then he multiplied it and fed everybody. And they picked up food after. He, he goes asleep in this boat. And a storm comes up. And they're weeping and wailing, these boatsmen, these boaters, because they're overwhelmed by the storm. And Jesus is sleeping. And he gets up and says, what is the problem? You're my disciples. Trust God. And then he speaks, and the waters are calm. They learn, and then Peter fell down and said, I am a sinful man, because I am now in the presence of God. And see, that's sometimes what we lose in the church. Uh, Jesus was running an operation where he was in charge. He did what he felt he should do, day in and day out. Actually, he did what the Father was telling him to do. He never took a vote among his disciples or his followers about, well, what should we do next? Now, that creates an interesting situation when you come to the church because we have something in the modern era which is a great blessing and a bane at the same time. It's called paid clergy. It's a blessing because I have the time and energy to devote to ministry and to study and to prepare sermons. It's a bane because if you pay someone, then you feel like you should decide what they do with their time. And so, if it turns out a group of people uh, looks at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and says, well, pick and choose what you want, they say, we want the, the, we want the ministry. We want the pastor to be in our home and at our sick bed and in the hospital. We want to hang out with him. His job is that part. And the pastor says, well, what about this part over here, training leadership? Well, we're not worried, that much worried about that. We don't see you do that. And we want to see you out ministering. And that's the way it's been through the life of the church. And so we end up with churches that are ministered to, but don't have well-trained leadership. Notice that when Jesus appeared, or excuse me, when the Holy Spirit came down in Acts 1, after three years of the Son of God uh, teaching and healing and, and doing all this stuff, how many people were in the upper room? 12,000? 1,200? How many? 120. I tell you what, if I ministered for three years and did the miracles Jesus did and I only had 120 followers, I'd be a little, a little disappointed. But you see, he was dealing where the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out and there were hard hearts. They tried to kill him in Nazareth where he grew up. And then he went down to Capernaum, and a great light came to them. And it says, Woe to you, Capernaum. It should be better for you in the day, in the day than Sodom and Gomorrah, because a greater light came to you, me. So it was such a hardness of heart that they were on 120. But you know why they were 120? They were trained. How did he replace that 12th apostle? He had been with him from the beginning and heard all his teaching and training. That was the standard. And so when I come to a situation like this, and I'm a, an interim, senior pastor interim, and I work for an organization, and you have contracted with the organization for me to come here, I work under the uh, oversight of the elder board. That's the way we work, and the, you elected the elder board. But before I come, we actually sign a contract. 
and then you write down, here are the main things we want you to work on, and we agree on that. So I get the privilege of kind of focusing on what's important and not what's urgent. And my word to you is when your new pastor gets here, say, are you going to follow the ministry of Jesus? Are you going to train leaders the way he did? Now, bring that up because Jesus said, I have finished the work you gave me to do. And when you call a new pastor, we're going to need to define what his job is as senior pastor. And I hope we include in there major chunk, training leadership, among all the other things that he'll be doing. So then, this is a picture of what Jesus' job was, training leaders, ministering to the sheep. The shepherd, as a shepherd. He did all that. He set the pattern. But if you look at it in context in John 17, you'll see he says, um, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you give an authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. You give him authority over all flesh that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. So he defines his work as giving eternal life to all those you have given him. You follow me? That's what he says his job was. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And so we're going to take it this morning that his job was to give eternal life to all those that the Father had given him. So if that is the work, then let's ask this question, how did he go about doing it? Well, we know the answer to that. He laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin. He died for our sins. But that's only half of the equation. There's another half. That half is called the passive obedience of Christ. He laid down his life. He let others put him to death. There's a first half to that because before he first laid down his life, he had to be a sinless, blameless, perfect lamb. And a lamb that is not washed <laughs> is not clean. Go back for a moment to our predecessor, Adam, in the Garden of Eden. He was put on probation, as it were. He didn't have a single sinful nature. He had a perfect body. He had a wonderful environment. He walked and spoke with God every day. He had a wonderful spouse. He had cooperative animals that would come up and get named. Uh, he had this environment. So God said, I'll give you all this in my presence. Just do one thing. Obey my words. Okay, see that tree over there? Any other, any other plant you can eat, but don't eat from that tree. And if you don't eat from that tree and obey my word, you will have eternal life. And now we know the rest of the story. Adam and Eve were tempted, and they fell from their high estate. And when that happened, they became sinful. They broke God's law. They disobeyed him. And by saying that, and they said, he is, God is not to be trusted he doesn't have our best interest uh, in mind. 
uh, we better go out and get our own. In other words, they attacked and rebelled and besmirched the character of God. He is not worthy of trust. And then it said the wages of sin is death. So at that point, you know, they started dying. Dying is separation, okay? First of all, they were separated from God. They hid from him. Secondly, they were separated from each other. First thing Adam did was throw Eve, Eve under the bus. The woman that you gave me, she gave me food, the fruit, and I ate it. So they were separated. The rest of his life, Eve would say to him, you blame me. And he'd have to say, yeah, you're right. They were separated from their environment because they were kicked out of the garden, and that's what we've done. They were separated from themselves. They felt fear when God came. And that causes psychological, emotional problems. Sin is separation. And if their minds were blinded, their hearts became hard, their wills became enchained, and here we are. But he was on probation, and he failed the test. And Scripture says, I gave you this at the beginning of uh, uh, the first page of the bulletin, it says, if because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through the one man, Adam. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The free gift of righteousness. Jesus not only died for our sin and paid for us. See, that would have brought us back to neutral. We wouldn't have been righteous. We'd have just been unsinful. But you can't get to heaven without righteousness. You shall be holy because God is holy. None of the righteous can stand in God's holy presence. That's why Adam was promised eternal life and righteousness if he obeyed God. He disobeyed, and the result of that disobedience, separation in all those areas and physical death came upon him and all his progeny. Now look around. I think everybody here this morning is a child of Adam and Mother Eve. Okay. So that's what we inherited. And then God said, you got the sin from Adam. Here's my plan. I will bring forth a second Adam and give the human race a second chance. But this person must fully keep the law of God. He must do what Adam didn't do. He must fully keep the law of God. Well, what does that mean? Entire and thoroughgoing obedience to the commands, laws, decrees, and ordinances of the Heavenly Father. Obey the entire law of God in every respect, doing everything that God required. No omissions, no breaking. In fact, when Jesus came along with the Ten Commandments, he said, it's just not what you do. He said, it's not just if you mother your, murder your brother, if you call him fool, it's the same as murder. It's just not committing adultery. If you think it in your mind, you're guilty. Jesus didn't make it easier. He made it harder. And then he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength 
and your neighbors yourself. No human being can do that. Every day, every second. Pure motives, pure actions for a whole lifetime. Adam couldn't do it, and he didn't have a sinful nature, and he had a perfect environment. We are fallen people in a fallen world. So what we needed was another Adam to head up the race, another representative who would come and be an always tempted as we are, yet not sinning. So how is he tempted? First John, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life, those three areas. Jesus was tempted in all those areas, and yet he never sinned. You know, the, 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 the desires of the flesh. Jesus wanted his own home. He wanted a wife. He wanted children. He wanted a job where he could be productive. He wanted a place in the community. The eyes. He wanted the nicest house in, time, in town. He wanted the nicest donkey. He wanted a place down by the Sea of Galilee where he could go and relax and go out on his fishing boat the pride of life. He wanted to be recognized as a contributing member of the community. Hey, he wanted to be recognized as the Son of God. But God said, no, that's not in my plan for you. My plan for you is not to marry and not to have a home. My plan for you is to be rejected of men. My plan for you is to die an ignominious death on a cross and the shame that that brought so that you could pay for your people. And Jesus at every point in time said, I will do that. I have come to do thy will, O God, a body you have prepared for me. As Ken read from Hebrews. It was preceded by an Exodus passage where it says, God, uh, Moses wrote down all that God said and read it, and the people said, everything God has said, we will do. And they didn't, because they couldn't. And then Jesus came along, and what does it say here under actually finishing the work? On page 8, John 4, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. His very food. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. Every word he spoke was given to him by God. When? In late night and early morning prayer. When others were sleeping. I will say, not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. He expressed his love for his Father by doing exactly what his Father commanded. And in every situation, he asked to ask God through prayer, what am I supposed to do and what am I supposed to say? And God told him what to do and what to say and for 33 years, especially the last three, he always did what his father said. He always spoke what his father told him to speak. He never rebelled in his heart or his mind. It was his food to do 
what the Father told me. Now, I can see that of a son of God, but a son of Adam, Jesus was both, yet without sin. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. It wasn't easy to fight against the desire of the flesh and the desires of the life, of the eyes, and the pride of life. In fact, it, it was a wrestling match. In fact, it was a fight to the death. He suffered when he made those decisions. And when he had finished this work, he was a man who had passed the test. Adam was on probation and he failed and he lost eternal life. Jesus filled the probation and he won and he gained eternal life. But catch this, he didn't need to gain righteousness for himself. He already had it. He was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He was holy, holy, holy. He didn't need to gain righteousness. He already had it. He invented it. So whom did he do all this for? For his people to give eternal life to all those whom the Father gave him. So when we come to Memorial Day weekend and we remember those who sacrificed so that we might have these benefits, that is a picture of what Jesus did, who lived a perfect life so that he could present a perfect sacrifice to God, but beyond that, so that he may win righteousness for his people. Well, how do we receive this righteousness? To many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Scripture talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we are in Christ, those who are in Christ. It actually talks about a spiritual baptism where every believer, every new believer is incorporated into the body of Christ, is baptized into the body of Christ and become one with Him. And all that is His becomes ours so that that righteousness that he earned actively obeying can be transferred to us and it will be completely transferred one day in heaven but now it's transferred bit by bit as we take advantage of the means of grace as we study his word as we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as we pray, as we give, as we serve, as we come in here and listen to the preaching, as we are baptized and we partake of the Lord's table like we will next Sunday. Gradually, step by step, the sin is revealed in our lives and we confess it and we're forgiven. And then we repent. And as each year goes by, we become more conformed to the image of God.
Now, let me tell you what the act of obedience did, does for me. There was a great leader in the Presbyterian Church named Dr. J. Gresham Machen, and he died in 1937 on a preaching tour up in the Dakotas. And right before he died, he sent a telegram to his fellow professor and friend, John Murray, and he said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Because, you see, Christ's death pays for our sin and brings us to neutral. But his three years of obeying God's law gave him a tested righteousness that becomes ours. So, not only are we saved by his death, we are saved by his life. And not only are our sins forgiven, but we are given a positive righteousness. And what happens is that as you get older, you know how this is, you feel less and less holy because you realize more and more how sinful you are. And that can be a burden because you think, I did it again. <laughs> I thought something, I felt something, I said something, I did something. I didn't do something. I didn't say something. It's just an endless treadmill being a fallen person in a fallen world. And Satan can use it against our mind and our conscience and our heart. But we have a remedy. We have a balm. When that happens, tell you what I do. I say, that sin is forgiven. And God looks at me and sees the righteousness of Christ. Everything I do wrong, Jesus did right. And instead of seeing my wrong, he sees his right. Because I'm in Jesus and everything he has is mine and he is in me. I didn't do that. Jesus and the Holy Spirit did it. The solace of thinking, it's not me, it's Jesus. I do everything the Father tells me to do. I do everything the Father tells me to say. I do exactly what he tells me to do. And that's why the voice came from heaven at the baptism and said, Thou art my beloved Son, with thee I am well and that's why Jesus can kneel in that garden and say, I have, I have brought you glory by completing the work you gave me to do. I've finished it. Now, he's still got to finish it in his mind as God is completed. He's still got to say, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And then he said, but not my will, but thine be done. And when he said that, he not only became our hero, he became our righteousness. Tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He learned his obedience through the things that he suffered. And then being the stainless lamb, look on this page, the reason under finishing the work passively. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, 
and authority to take it up again, this command I received from my Father. So we call it the passive obedience in contrast to the active obedience, but it was pretty active. He laid it down. Oh, and let me quickly add, passive and active. We can distinguish these two, but never separate them. One, they are inextricably linked together, and it requires both. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him, nailing him to the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not just forgiven, praise God, but actually have righteousness so that we can come into God's heaven, and that's how he gives eternal life to the people that God has given him. Actively obeying and passively obeying. Living righteous and laying it down. Completing the work. What a statement. Now, what's our response? Look at John 14. You remember back over here, Jesus said, the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what he has commanded me. You see love and obedience connected in the life of Jesus. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. Side deal. When we download these from the internet and put them in the bulletin, different translations jump up. Okay, this is the 2011 NIV. I use the 1984. And the best translation, the Revised New American Standard, and my favorite, which we no longer hardly print, all of them say, my father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. They wanted to avoid the male pronoun, so they put, put them in. Now, here's the problem with that. This is about us as individuals, not as a group. And the verb should agree with the subject. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Well, let me do it from memory. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he will be loved by my Father. And my Father will disclose himself to him. Obedience. Jesus said, I obeyed because I loved. And he says, so if you love, you will obey. Now listen, folks. This was not some summer soldier or sunshine patriot. He was sent into the wilderness where it was lonely and arid. He didn't eat for 40 days. He was weak and worn. And it's then that Satan came to him. And he said, let me go for the flesh. If you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. And Jesus said, that's not my father's plan. I obey. He sent me out here to not eat. And then he said, well, let's try the flesh. Okay? That's the lust of the flesh. Lust of the, the pride. He took him to the, to the pinnacle of the temple. He said, throw yourself down in front of everybody. And Scripture says he won't allow, allow your foot to touch the ground. And all these brilliant shining angels will show up in front of everybody and rescue you. And they'll know that you're the Son of God. And Jesus said, you're not to tempt God. 
And then he went for the eyes and the pride of life. And he took him to a tall mountain. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I'll give you all of this. What you're dying for. And you don't have to die. Just worship me. And Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and no one else. And Satan left. When Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he is speaking from experience. He loved his father. And he said, the world has to see that I love him by keeping his commandments. And then it says, angels came and ministered to him because he was so weak. He was worn and weary. He couldn't make it back to town where there was food and drink by his own. So what should our response to this be? Love results in obedience. All the time? No. We're sinful. That's why he died. Feeling guilty and low down? We have his righteousness. Saved to the uttermost. Eternal life guaranteed. Not only by the death of Christ, but by his life. Not only by being forgiven, but by being made righteous and given the righteousness of Christ. No better bond. And that's why people that know God through his son are obedient because they have learned to love their Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Jesus finished the job. He finished the work that you gave him to give eternal life to his people by always obeying you because he loved you and then voluntarily laying down his life to pay the debt that Adam and all his children owed. Thank you, Father. Thank you for so great a Savior. Give us the grace, Father, to love him and then to obey him. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.